When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The United States, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote in his 1835 book, Democracy in America, is a country where people spend most of their lives in voluntary associations. He meant clubs, community organizations, and all sorts of activities that tie us together in communities and groups which are not imposed on us by the state. How can we balance this fundamental right of free association, which is anchored in the U.S. and the First Amendment, and the government's obligation to protect its citizens from unjust and illegal treatment. Should the government intervene when there's a speech controversy on campus, which is, after all, a voluntary association? Or should universities be allowed to set their own rules, like other associations, such as clubs, homeowner associations, churches, synagogues, temples, and mosques? Professor Jacob Levy has written extensively about the tension between the idea that the states grants or restricts our liberties while allowing private associations to set their own rules. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. The relationship between the state and then the many smaller organizations, associations, etc., that we are part of, and how to balance that. So it's not a book primarily about the special case of universities, it's a book about the general problem in liberalism, liberal societies, and also the history of liberal thought, about how to think about the relationship between threats to our freedom that come from a powerful centralized state and threats that come from more local, more particular, more customary, thicker kinds of associational life. And I do think it's important to take them both seriously at the same time that it's a book of partly about how difficult it is to take both of them seriously at the same time and how rare it's been in the history of liberal thought for there to be really first-rate thinkers who were capable of seeing and understanding both at the same time. Even a rare case like John Stuart Mill, who thinks that he's got both in mind, has a very hard time actually retaining focus on, in his case, retaining focus on the threats of the central state because he's so preoccupied with the threats to liberty posed by social convention and custom and thick local group membership and religious identification and all the rest, that he places a great deal of faith in what his idealized version of a bureaucratized state can do to free people from uh, all of their tendency to just follow the crowd. The, there has to be a way of keeping track, at least conceptually, at least uh, in the abstract, of just the fact that both states and non-state groups have ways of limiting our freedom more than in principle we would like. Uh, but they interact with each other. And if you set out to build a constitution or a political system or a set of rights on the assumption that central states are the only problem, then you'll, you'll give a great deal more associational freedom, a great deal more political power, a great deal more decentralization uh, than you would ideally want if you're simultaneously taking seriously the threats from the local, the customary, the voluntary, and so on, and vice versa. And give me an example of these associational or these local arrangements, which can be very powerful, and the university is only one of those examples. So what is meant by that? The traditional core case is religion or church. That's where most of the action was in the debates that took shape around this over the course of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Do we want states to protect people from what was understood to be something like their brainwashing at the hands of 
the priest. One of the things that I do in the book that is a little different from how these debates are often treated is that I also characterize local and provincial levels of government as being roughly on the same relevant side as voluntary associations or churches. Uh, as I read the debates, that's roughly how it mapped out. Those who were worried about provincialism, those who were worried that, say, the French provinces were going to be forces for traditionalism on the minds of the people and therefore a centralized, rationalizing, Jacobin-style state in Paris would go out and liberate people's minds, they viewed the provinces just as much as an enemy as they viewed the church. What we would think of as the distinction between non-state actors like the church and state actors like provinces or cities simply wasn't the way that those debates panned out, partly because the distinction between state and non-state sectors, as we conceive it, doesn't really go much before the mid-19th century even in, in the United States and Britain. Um, was the Ancien Regime church part of the state or not? Well, the answer has to be kind of. The church was an estate of the realm, after all. For our interest, what about universities? So up until the Dartmouth College case in the United States, universities and cities were the same kind of corporate entity. They had corporate charters. They had corporate charters on the old model of what corporations were like, which was specially granted monopolistic privileges to private actors from public power. And the sense in which Dartmouth College was a corporation and the sense in, in which Hanover, New Hampshire was a corporation just weren't actually legally differentiated in the way that we're now used to. Uh, since the early to mid-19th century in the United States, since a little bit after that in Britain and then later still in France, uh, the distinctions have become much sharper. But I think that the ingrained habits of how how we think, how political theorists think, but how constitutions and how societies deal with local power, local rules, what we still call bylaws after all, even in the case of private universities or private homeowners associations or clubs. Clubs make bylaws, which is to say it's a kind of branch of legal power that is delegated to and available for use by these private actors. But let me just ask for some clarification. What I found really useful in what you're describing is that it's not that we live in the world as individuals and the only power the state at a remove, it's the government, it's the courts, it's the police, but there are many organizations that regulate our lives and either give us the freedoms we want or restrict those freedoms. We may voluntarily join them or we may be part of them because we live in a, in a neighborhood. So there may be rules around, the, as you said, a homeowner association, or we go to a university or we join a club or we want to participate in some activities organized by the local park. But they're not state rules, what you're saying, bylaws, they are rules, which may be binding, but they're norms. And the tension, I think that has been in a lot of these cases around universities, is as if the individual versus and then the state comes in to rescue the individual. And what you're introducing is to say the university has been set up to have its own, like all associations, have its own set of rules, which either grants or restricts freedoms. And should the state be called in to rescue me from a rule that I don't like in the university? Or is the state the thing that should tolerate the fact that you and I can join and make a club now and we have our own rules and the state should leave us alone to make that up to what point? So I think what you're introducing is this other dimension that what habitually is called, oh, these are just rules of conduct. That's how people are supposed to behave in a university. You say it's quite a bit more than that. It's actually how power is exacted and how we live our lives in the world, in, in a democracy. Yes. And the the other piece of it is to understand that um, those rules, those rules that uh, can generate kinds of restrictions of freedom and kinds of local power in the association, in the city, in the university, they're what make those organizations into organizations. What we do when we associate is we come together and say, for these purposes, when we're together in this setting, here are the things we won't do. Here are the authority structures we will abide by. We might retain our freedom out in the rest of the world, but qua member of this church, when we all come together in this church, we are going to agree to 
not entertain every religious opinion possible, not entertain every atheist or blasphemous thing we could say. When we come together, we're coming together for the purpose of affirmatively doing something in common, worshiping together in common. When you close one eye and look at it, that looks like just the meaning of what it is to associate together. When you close the other eye and look at it, it looks like, well, the church is violating my religious liberty because why aren't I free to entertain every atheist or blasphemous or other religious thought that I could possibly imagine? And the answer has to be, well, at least sometimes both. There has to be some vocabulary that we have for describing those local associations with their genuine organization constituting rules as sometimes creating so much local power, so much authority over the minds of the members, that a full theory of freedom has something to say about it. But um, for the case that you're talking about with respect to universities, it also has to be the case that we retain the ability to say, the organizations are defined by being different from general liberal democracy, by being different from general civil society, by not being purely defined in negative liberty terms. The organizations are there for us to do things together. And that means they are there by virtue of having rules that shape them and constitute them. And there's been a great deal of confusion in the last three, four, five years about university life because people think of universities as if they're just the general civil society, general liberal democracy, as a freedom of speech as it exists in the negative sense in politics, which is open to all kind of purposeless and false and deceptive speech can just be taken over as if it were a core value of the university. And it's not. I want to ask you one thing before we get to what you're doing in your book to say, it's actually a bit more complicated. You cannot just call on the state and say, help me, here are rules that I don't like. Because you say the point of a private association is it should be allowed to have restrictive rules, unlike the liberal democratic state. You should be allowed to say, in this setting here, you have to wear a hat, or you cannot wear hats, or you have to wear long pants, or you cannot wear, you have a dress code, or you can say you cannot use foul language. That's just one of the rules in our club here, and if you, we're going to throw you out. And you cannot call on the First Amendment and say, well, Jacob didn't let me curse here, and now I'm no longer part of the club. And you're like, well, that's our the rules of our clubs, and you sort of agreed with it implicitly or explicitly. So you're saying the confusion is on many sides. There's on the one hand that the state comes to the rescue. And on the other hand, you're saying people forget that the university is set up for what you call the purpose. It has, there's an intention. You join this to reach a goal. And this, so to take this apart, to sort of say, what are the reasons why this has come to such a head where people have resorted to one idea or the other, that the state grants us all this freedom, or this is a restriction. And at the same time, what they're invoking is that the university should grant us freedoms that the state is supposed to grant us. So it skips this entire step you've introduced. Yes, it, it makes the organization socially transparent, as if it's there's just no difference between being inside the university's walls and being out in the general neutral space of liberal democracy and civil society. But that's not what any organization can be like. There has to be some meaningful difference. And that difference takes the shape of saying, there are things that we do here. There are things that are in the service of the purpose of this organization that we do here. But it's interesting what people, a lot of people have said to me, the question you just said, they've reframed this in a different way. They say, where's the line? So, and then they say, the university should not be just different from the regular, let's say, less regulated space of the public, whatever that is, but it should even have more freedom of speech rights. They say it should be more speech in the university. That's, you've heard this argument many times, right? And you've written about academic freedom, but people say, isn't the university where you should be able to say just anything, which is even maybe not allowed in you know the public square? Now, I think there's a partial truth there. I do think the university's core commitment to academic freedom, which is not freedom of speech, it's a different value, but the university's core commitment to academic freedom means that sometimes you should see universities fighting for the freedom of their members, professors or students, their scholarly members, to research things and study things that the state as a whole wouldn't allow. When you have, in most of the world, restrictions on speech of various kinds that wouldn't pass US constitutional muster under the, under the First Amendment, but when you have restrictions on 
Holocaust denialism, when you have restrictions on hate speech, when you have restrictions on blasphemy, which are still relatively common even in liberal democracies, that should sometimes create friction where the universities say, right, on campus, it is our view, because we are an academic freedom organization, that if you're doing serious research, if you are proceeding in an intellectually respectable way, we do not support those content restrictions by the state. We will, if we need to, help defend our professors, our students against charges. We're certainly not going to enforce those state rules because the university is different from the state. If the state wants to arrest you off campus, we might not be able to stop them. But at the very least, we're not going to import those restrictions into the university's code. However, I had all those qualifications that said, if you're doing it as an academic, if you're doing it in a serious, thoughtful, truth-seeking way, it is not the case, and it couldn't be the case, that the university is across the board just more open to anyone saying anything for any purpose than is the case in the background society of liberal democracy. The example that I always use here is plagiarism and ghostwriting. In the background liberal democratic society, in a place like the United States, ghostwriting is a perfectly legal, legitimate, protected by the First Amendment activity. If I want to write, or if, if I want to publish Profiles in Courage with my name on the cover, and I want to arrange a secret side deal with my good friend who's going to actually write the book for me, whose name will not be on the cover, I'm allowed to do that. The First Amendment protects what is on the face of it, a kind of lie the lie that I wrote the book. Right. And you said that there could be a civil claim or something for copyright, but it's legally protected to write that. As an academic, could I do that? Could I publish a book? And, and, and I mean, there's not even a civil claim if it's a valid contract. Ghostwriting is a It's a contract, right. right. Yeah. If it's not plagiarism, yeah. As uh, on a university campus, whether you're a professor or a student, that is one of the gravest offenses you can commit to, sub to claim to have written work that you didn't write. That's plagiarism, and professors get fired for it, even tenured professors, and students get expelled for it. Because there's a kind of lie that the university can't tolerate you telling that the background liberal order does tolerate people telling. That's interesting. It's a useful example. So they, the university makes a distinction and says this type of speech, broadly saying it's speech, we can't tolerate this because it undermines the entire principle on which we rest, that it actually is opposed to do research and declare your own work to be your own work. You're saying in the civil society, in the large society, just, no one would care, but in the university, you can lose your job over it. Or it's, we have students right now in America who have been expelled for an admission scandal because they submitted work that wasn't their work when they entered the university. Several universities in America have just expelled students on this entire... There, there, there are other legal issues there, too. Th those aren't just speech problems. But yes, the university has to be able to have speech rules mm -hmm. that on some dimensions are more restrictive than the background society. So what your interlocutors are asking you, shouldn't the university be the freest possible space that actually can't be? And then let me ask you the other examples. So let's say really incendiary examples, Holocaust denial or flat earth or my idea that there's a planet called that doesn't exist really has been Vulcan that has been denied that existence, and I'm going to do a research project on that. Can the university say to me, you're not going to do that research project. You cannot set up a lab to study the existence of the planet Vulcan or to show that the Holocaust didn't exist. Is there a way the university, where does the university's space exist to regulate that at all or to just say, well, that's your project, you have to do it? Here we get to a complicated answers that partly depend on who you are within the university. Academic freedom is substantially not completely, but substantially, the freedom of disciplines to set standards of inquiry. There's not actually a single university-wide methodology that applies in the physics department and the English literary theory department about what it looks like to ask a valid question and pursue it using valid tools. The university as a whole helps to decide what are valid disciplines, and you don't create an astrology department. But within the world of the kind of nested associations that is a university with faculties and colleges, with disciplines and departments, substantially we let each discipline shape its norms of inquiry. What it means to shape those norms of inquiry is to say there are some things that fall outside of it. And if you are a student and you submit a research project that falls outside what we in this discipline understand as the rules of inquiry, and it falls so far outside that we understand you as having 
in some fundamental sense, not engage in the right enterprise. You've committed some kind of fraud. You've proceeded dishonestly. We'll disallow it. Faculty will disallow it to students. If you're yourself a professor and you do it, well, we count on peer review to exercise a great deal of the filtering and screening against things that are really outside the modes of inquiry of the discipline. But sometimes things would get past peer review and still the disciplinary department would say, this is not valid inquiry. You're not going to get tenure for this, or we are not going to treat it as being a valid contribution to your academic portfolio for purposes of raises or honors if you're already tenured. And if it's beyond a certain line, it's an extreme line, but if it's beyond a certain line, we're going to characterize it as fraudulent research, and even a tenured professor can find that their employment is in jeopardy. What nobody at any of those levels can say is, you may not ask the question. Even you may not ask the flat earth question. Now, if you're doing valid research, according to the norms of the relevant disciplines, physics or geology, you'll ask a question and you'll be done in about 30 seconds. So you're not going to make a valuable research contribution by asking the question. And it will get really boring really fast if all you do is you keep saying, well, but what I'm doing is asking the question, which is the, the mode that some kinds of YouTube academic celebrities proceed. Well, I'm never going to get around to actually checking the evidence on, say, race and IQ. But I'm going to characterize myself as a brave free speech warrior because every month I'm going to make an hour-long YouTube video about the importance of being free to ask the question. Turns out that if you ask the question according to recognized modes of scientific inquiry, uh, you get an answer. You get an answer really quickly. Uh, and so the university isn't going to give you lots of credit for asking the question because you're not making a useful new research contribution. All of this could stay. You would think this could all stay happily in the very complicated, often contentious decision-making processes of the university. This is methodologies. There's huge contestations about them. They're not compatible, maybe even commensurate among different disciplines. We've lived through the Sokol hoax 20 years ago. Physics and literary criticism don't use the same methodologies. Right. We proved that, okay? But it doesn't stay there. And what's interesting in your work is sort of you bring this into relationship with these ideas of liberal democracy and sort of political theory and say somehow it touches on issues that then get brought in. And, and I think what your book is doing is not saying it's entirely wrong. It raises really important and interesting questions. It's not just you can just say, I'm a political scientist. This is a category mistake. You're just getting it all wrong. Some things are not contained entirely in that sphere of the academics, which reassures the public to say it's not just a group of the ivory tower academics who decide what is valid and what isn't valid for the world, because you would rather have a more robust, open discussion. Yeah. Universities could take on lots of the dynamics and characteristics that I talk about in the book with respect to the whole range of local and intermediate and voluntary associations, they can become captured by crowdthink. They can acquire mob mentalities. They can end up delegating more power to their local elites, be that your local administrators or your local superstar senior faculty or, in some contexts, your local student government. They can delegate more power, even though naturally they have to delegate some power. That's what it's like to have an authority structure. But the authority structure can metastasize and can become a local, a source of local abuse. Given that the university has this core commitment to academic freedom, I think we can easily describe what that would look like when the local elite, be that the student government or the administration or the senior faculty or whatever, start to restrict what questions you can ask. That, I think... That, that's not a problem of category mistake. There you're describing a genuine threat to freedom happening in a university setting, even though, of course, universities have to have lots of rules, even though universities are not just background free speech. There are things you can look at and say, that's the university restricting what it should not restrict. We have to have a separate then empirical inquiry. Is that what universities are like? Is that what which universities are like with respect to which issues? And I've as you know, engaged in some public writing after since the book came out, denying that universities are in the grip of the kind of left-wing mob mentality that they're made out to be in descriptions of it on the part of, well, news organizations that have a serious financial interest in stirring up an anti-university panic and 
the occasional on-campus figure who likes to cultivate an off-campus audience. audience. Right. There's, there's, this crisis narrative doesn't totally work. And yet you said it does touch on something worth looking at. Where does the university perhaps um, infringe on even the freedom of its members in ways that are not in line with its purpose, not in line with its mission? And there, there's a, then there you have a problem, right? Yes. And, and that means that when you encounter, for example, deans who are exercising really lots of power over what students can or can't say on campus, you want to look at it. You want to think about it. Look at it and think about it against the background of plausible and true generalizations about how universities act. And the crisis narrative tends to undermine that, it tends to mean that people approach each new empirical question with a thumb on the scale. There are general features of universities where I do think we have reason to worry. For example, there's considerable evidence of both on-campus and then on-campus driven by off-campus actors, uh, restriction on anti-Israeli speech or restriction on organizing in support of the boycott and divestment of Israel movement. And I oppose BDS, and I, I am substantively critical of a lot of this anti-Israel speech. But when I look at real free speech problems on American campuses, real academic freedom problems on American campuses, I see faculty members whose job offers were withdrawn because they engaged in anti-Israel commentary on social media. I see adjunct professors whose jobs are terminated, their contracts aren't renewed, because they engage in anti-Israel speech in interviews or in public contexts. That means that when the next case comes along, and I see that some anti-Israel student or professor seems to have suffered some adverse academic consequence for their off-campus speech, I'm inclined to be suspicious. I'm not going to approach that as if it's a purely open question. The problem here is that what you're saying is that people's jobs are uh, jeopardized or they lose their jobs, that the university is punishing them for exercising something that isn't necessarily quite an academic freedom, but it is their right to speak. You've said it's sort of in this extramural way they can speak outside of the university, so on social media, etc. So y you would say the university should leave those people alone. They should say whatever they want to say, and the university may have a position on this. Most universities by now have a position on this, but they shouldn't punish for saying some people for saying something like that, right? The academic freedom norms have an internal face and an external face. The internal face is you may engage in any inquiry within the confines of whatever is the relevant mode of legitimate inquiry. You may ask any legitimate scientific question and pursue it according to the relevant norms. And you will not be punished for finding an unpopular answer. When you're acting as a researcher or a student or a teacher, you have complete freedom within the space of the discipline. You may be judged for doing it badly. You may be judged for not generating enough useful research. You may be denied tenure. You may be denied a job for not, not generating enough research. But that's the only ground on which you may be judged badly by the university in terms of your status at the university. So this is now the external face of academic freedom. What you do on your own time is invisible to the university. What you say in contexts other than the classroom and the research project is not the university's concern. And this is the policy on extramural speech that has gradually been strengthened by the AAUP. And I think they've got the principles roughly right. I'm going to ask you something about this principle. It's a good principle. But as we all know, universities are really pushed against the wall because a professor or a staff member or a student, an administrator says something outside of the university on social media. And then there's a firestorm of public opinion that engulfs the university. So the university has a hard time then saying, well, our principles, that speech she can do whatever she wants, it's not academic, etc. We have this academic freedom carved out here. That seems to be quite lost on the public and on our legislators who are very busy thinking really hard about the university, how to enforce free speech rules, how to restrict certain things about certain types of speech. So you've worked on this. How can 
people understand this how the association can regulate itself when there's now this much bigger space when they're saying you're doing it the wrong way. They're kind of and then the default is you must use the First Amendment and the state's going to help you out here because you're getting things wrong. That seems to be the seem to have been for at least two years the idea. Say, well, you have a free speech problem. First Amendment will help you out. We've seen that doesn't really work very well for many universities, public or private. I, I think the way you just told that story ends up putting the same actor on both sides, which is to say, where does the firestorm come from? The firestorm, when some professor or student says something politically unpopular, tends to come from American conservative media. The demand to fire the adjunct, because the adjunct has said something truly deeply outrageous, tends to be because the adjunct has said something perceived to be anti-Israel or anti-white, sometimes perceived to be anti-Christian. Those are then the same people who will say, look, there's a free speech crisis on universities. There's, there's a sheer talking out of both sides of their mouth on this. I don't think there's a bunch of people who are simultaneously saying, we really need to protect those vulnerable adjuncts from these Fox News firestorms. And there's a free speech campus on universities and everyone on universities needs the added protection of this pro-free speech legislation. Well, let me say there's another actor in this, which is the, the students who have been characterized as either social justice warriors, which is a derogatory term. I think it shouldn't be derogatory. Actually, I think it should be good to fight for social justice. But they're, they're, they're coddled snowflakes and they're oversensitive and they are shouting down speakers or resorting to violence, which is unacceptable, but they're definitely interfering with speech. So they're also a bad actor in this. Or the students are saying, no, we're not the bad actors. We're actually showing up the contradictions or tensions in this conception of speech in the university, and we're forcing the university to be more clear and articulate the ideas you just articulated. So where are the students fitting into this? Because they've been painted, they're kind of painted into, the, into a corner as well. And here's where I think, here's another of these moments where I think it's important to get a valid generalization fixed in mind before starting to look at particular cases. And the crisis narrative, the panic over the social justice snowflakes story, predisposes primarily off-campus observers to witness every student protest, sometimes just every student act of counterspeech, as if it is censorship, as if it is a genuine shutdown. There have been genuine cases of students engaged in conduct that's a serious affront to the way that a university should be open to debate. There have been cases when speakers have been physically assaulted. There have been cases when a, a speech has been physically prevented from happening. I tend to include shouting down as being on that side of genuine bad conduct. Off-campus speakers aren't the core of academic freedom, and part of what's gone strange in our narrative about universities is that there's wildly disproportionate attention to uh, the off-campus speakers who student clubs invite to come speak. That's kind of a nice thing, and it's a thing that universities encourage in their little internal mini-civil societies is form student clubs, have off-campus speakers. We think that's good. It tends to engage students' minds outside the classroom too. But that's not the core of what a university's commitments to open debate are for. Therefore, the laboratory, the library, the classroom. But these off-campus speakers, even though their rights aren't centrally what a university is concerned with, somebody's invited them. And the department or the club that invited them does have a genuine right, a genuine claim and freedom to be able to hold their event without disruption. And when the events are disrupted, be they by students or by off-campus actors like the Black Bloc in Berkeley, then there's a genuine problem and universities need to be able to confront that, protect their events, protect their speakers. But I keep saying there have been cases. By that I mean there have been really, really, really few cases. Enough that they're bad, but not enough to make us reshape our understanding of how university students by the tens of thousands hear events by the tens of thousands in universities all across the US, all across North America and other liberal democracies over and over and over again. Universities are the home and the site to much wider ranging, much more open debate than is the case for any other organization that people spend their in-person time at. Or normal workplaces, homeowners associations, churches, bowling leagues, there's nothing else that we belong to that has a regular practice of 
inviting and hosting speakers to come say things, have debates with each other, invoke controversy. Most of the time, that stuff happens at universities just like it should. And that includes that students object to speakers they find objectionable. That's also part of free and open debate. And it's, it's the bad generalization of thinking students are these social justice snowflakes and that a case like Charles Murray's host being assaulted at Middlebury College of thinking that's the norm. It's right. I also I want to add something. I had Patricia Williams on this program and she said, and those people have a very powerful platform. She said, they have Fox News, they have social media, they are well-funded. She said, the one fact they want is to be in a liberal university. And why do they want that? And her question was, is that because they really need to get exposure and someone you know, needs to be in a college room with you know, 140 students, whereas he reaches millions on Fox News if he really wants to? So she said it's legitimation. And it touches on what we talked about a bit earlier, that the university's internal definition of what its association allows and doesn't allow is being challenged. And so the hard thing is that the university, shouldn't this all be sort of then adjudicated in the university? And people should say, leave us alone. Don't bring up, come up with your First Amendment ideas and all this as long as if we want to invite this person and if we want to deal with the student group, you're saying the student group has been granted the right to invite, then they have that right. The student group can also be reminded, for example, you cannot bring in, you know, your you know, roommate sister's new band and book the theater and promote her new YouTube video. That's just actually no one would allow that. Why not? because it's commercial interest, has nothing to do with academia, et cetera. So somehow there's, we make lots of decisions every day. I thought, I've been thinking about this so much, the university makes so, countless decisions all day who not to invite. Right. Basically, we're in the business of excluding ideas. We're also trying to be in the business of promoting good ideas or new ideas or interesting ideas or worthwhile, but we constantly deny people. But somehow the few examples that you just referred to, they generate... Such a fundamental question, it seems, but it, I don't know if it's really a fundamental question or whether it's a kind of putting a question into the wrong context. These, the, the few examples you said, do they really reveal something that you identified as this fundamental tension about an association such as a church, university, etc., homeowners association, in tension with the state? Because people resort to the state as the solution, say the First Amendment is going to give you this and the Supreme Court will tell you how to think about this? I think the answer is basically no. Uh, I think that the the cases in which the genuine freedom of inquiry of on-campus actors, including the student groups uh, who get to invite speakers, the cases in which their freedom of inquiry has actually been oppressed, jeopardized, interfered with are very few. And they're so few that off-campus actors trying to protect them are sure to do more damage than good. This is always the case when you try to make broad rules about exceptional cases. So what we're seeing is, for example, the Goldwater Institute, a conservative think tank, has promulgated model legislation for the protection of freedom of speech on campus. And the Goldwater Institute are not the kind of lying headline chasers that I'm worried about. They're just people who are in the grip of a bad generalization. And the bad generalization means that they're promulgating model legislation that will tend to criminalize even perfectly peaceful and reasonable student protests of controversial speakers or students uh, speakers they find objectionable. There's no way to capture the six or eight or 10 genuine bad cases in a surgical way with state legislation. So what they do is they write legislation that tends to capture anyone making any kind of visible or audible objection, standing outside the venue and protesting a speaker. Well, that's something that ought to be entirely free to university. But if you're in the grip of a panic that says the students are trying to shut everything down and you falsely believe that off-campus speakers are the core activity of a university, then you come up with this legislation that would punish the students for their, punish students who belong at a university for their speech, which belongs at a university, which is peaceful, but which seems like part of this broader problem. In your analysis, 
The problem I see in this, in this Goldwater idea, is the legislature will impose penalties on students, that it's referring to the state as regulating something that happens in an association that's either voluntary but has enormous social force and power, so it's an important one. It's not just you can opt out and not go to university. There's disadvantages. So there's something surprising that they would refer to the state to empower the state to actually, and they say in the name of free speech, but they will actually penalize people for speaking. So this is, to me, just some, seems like a contradiction to say you refer to the state and appeal to the First Amendment to say they're going to legislate that students who are standing outside of a venue. So how do they, rec how do you open this up in a productive way? Your book tries to open that up and say, no, the university has some rights and they have to be preserved and they may not they may be more restrictive or more permissive than what the state allows. Uh, and some of the confusion is especially bad in the U.S. because of the doctrine that public universities are simple agents of the state and directly governed by the Bill of Rights that governs public actors. This is a distinctively American problem. There are versions of it in Canada, but outside the U.S., there's simply not a very large private university sector. So if you're going to have meaningful universities with meaningful self-governance. Of course, that means public universities. And that means there's some awareness that says public universities still have to be universities. They still have to be organizations. I think there's a little bit of unease in the U.S. about recognizing that universities have to be organizations with thick internal norms. And the idea that the First Amendment directly governs the interior of a university's life, or this isn't about speech, but the idea that the Second Amendment directly governs universities such that uh, in states that have a very strong interpretation of the right to keep and bear arms, extending to the right to conceal to carry on one's person at all times, uh, that public universities may not restrict people from carrying firearms into their classrooms or dormitories. Or this is a problem of not taking the organizational life of the university seriously enough. The idea that you fix a university's speech problem by legislation is, I think, part of this same phenomenon of not understanding that even a public university has to be an organization. And what it is to be an organization is to be able to shape your own space, your own physical space, your own associational space, the norms that govern around here. I want to ask you something about that. In your book, you write that some norms, however, that the society accepts will be imposed on any organization. And you give the example of, um, I think, Bob Hope University that prohibited interracial dating at some point, and then the IRS first, and then the Supreme Court said you cannot get the status of a university and enforce rules that as a society we've actually moved beyond. So interracial dating or discrimination based on race or ethnicity or gender. So Title IX, Title VI. So are there values that the Goldwater Institute could say, no, those are your values that override what you just said is the right of this university to have our own internal norms and sets of behaviors and rules? So a couple of clarifications. Bob Jones wasn't denied the status of a university. It was denied the status of being a charitable nonprofit to which deductions could be tax deductible. And Title IX... Uh, Title IX restricts the activities of universities that receive federal funding. It's still perfectly possible to reject the federal subsidies and retain the associational freedoms that otherwise Title IX would restrict. Which, which is what the what Donald Trump's executive order is trying to tie some definition of freedom of speech to federal funding. That's right. So he's yeah. trying to use that as a, as a means to enforce what he considers is a value of the state. That's right. And what I, what I argue in the book, what I think is that Jim Crow is constitutionally unique in the United States. The Jim Crow regime in the American South was such a deliberate mixture of public, pri public power, private power, and illegal violent power that was still tolerated on the part of um, such that, say, the Klan could be relied on to help violently enforce at night rules and norms against integration when the public power of the state had failed to do so in the daytime. Such an interlocking set of different power structures that people were willing to defend so organizationally opportunistically that if public schools had to be integrated, 
you could wake up the next morning and find that your city didn't have any more public schools. What it had was private schools employing the same teachers, occupying the same buildings, supported by city vouchers, um, because now we have private academies, and private academies aren't governed by Brown versus Board. Jim Crow was so much like that, and the fact of American apartheid and racial supremacy is so constitutionally unique, as recognized by the Reconstruction Amendments, that the usual rules about freedom of association, the usual rules about uh, the ability to have internal freedom to shape our organizations according to our norms, um, were legitimately overwritten. But, but I think we run into real confusion when we lose sight of that being an exception. And when we start to think that what that means is, well, private organizations have to abide by the same rules as liberal democracy. That is ultimately incoherent. That's ultimately a way to say, well, the church can't believe in its own religious doctrine because a background norm of liberal democracy is freedom of religion. Uh, and it can't be the right answer that says a church can't believe in its own religious doctrine. What we have to understand is that the need to break the power of Jim Crow and apartheid uh, in the American South required exceptions. But then that means that we don't carry on as if the exception is the new rule. I think Bob Jones was already stretching the exception about as far as it could go. And I think that there's a reason why Bob Jones isn't a precedent that then keeps turning up in court cases about university governance, because it gets really incoherent really fast. It's interesting you say, can we live with this incoherence? Because I think what your book is trying to show is you say there are specific examples, context is very important, and to, to have one solution to this is going to err on the side of either imposing the liberal state's rules or allowing too much individual... Local, local power, sort of local constitutional local, power. Local power. And some local power that... And in your other book, The Multiculturalism of Fear, you say sometimes there are egregious violations of something and something is cruel or violent and you have to oppose it while we have to respect yep. local power that is distributed differently. So it is... Are you happy living with this kind of in sort of confusion or sort of say, this is what it is. This is, we're going to live with this confusion and then it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like saying things like case-by-case case as, as, as if that means you're approaching every new case from a neutral baseline. I think that's not how, that's not actually how we think and it's certainly not how judges or states or policymakers act. You have one generalization or another working in the back of your head. Rationalism, pluralism, freedom is all about how it looks when you have one or the other of these generalizations in the back of your head. Either organizations are valuable sites of free association of diverse lives that have the added advantage of checking the power of centralizing states as Tocqueville thought, or you think basically central states are made up of good, decent, humane, liberal, rational, bureaucratic, legal types who can help protect us against all of these horror, horrible local abuses, local despotisms. Uh, and over the course of the two books, I more or less offer a defense of treating the generalization as being the freedom of association generalization and treating the cases of regulating the violent and cruel practices internal to some cultural groups in the first book or say in this case, um, regulating a university that tries to engage in racial discrimination, of keeping, of making those exceptions, but keeping clear that they're exceptions, rather than letting them become the new generalization. It's interesting. Where do you think this whole discussion is going to go? Because I think people have tried to do the opposite. They wanted to have a generalized concept of free speech to apply to universities. And universities have responded by probably saying more what you're saying, these are exceptions, and you cannot generalize and have a blanket approach to all situations which lumps academic freedom under it, student conduct, extramural speech, external speakers, trigger warning safe spaces. There's this huge area, plus association, plus residential life. So do you think this is going to actually evolve? I mean, now we have our, you know, the American president is... Um, weighing in on this. We have nine depart government, federal departments and agencies now charged to actually look after this issue. 
Are people going to be capable to retain the nuance that you want them to? Uh, they, 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 they so rarely are. Um, so where it's going to go, I am I'm, I'm not very worried about the executive order and the new federal intrusion, um, partly because the agencies that are charged with it are themselves um, the academic agencies. I have considerable trust in say the people at the National Science Foundation, that NSF is not going to intrude any further into this business than they can possibly get away with. Um, it's actually a very different enforcement structure from what Title IX enforcement looks like, which is housed in the Department of Education. Here it's being delegated out to all the funding agencies, and the funding agencies have much closer relationships to the universities. Uh, I'm much more worried at the state level. I'm worried that public universities, especially in conservative states or especially in states that have very strong Republican legislatures, and those are different, um, are going to be very vulnerable to legislative pressure because it is the case that a state legislative education, higher education committee can really understand itself as if it's the super board of trustees of the public university. Um, it can dedicate itself pretty full time to making universities' lives miserable. And unlike NSF, it's not only not staffed with academics, it's staffed with people who like to run re-election campaigns talking about how they're sticking it to the lefty professors and the snowflake students. Um, even worse, in some states, not all states, but in some states, the board of trustees of the public universities are basically partisan gubernatorial hack appointments. Some public universities have a great deal more autonomy over their boards of trustees. Some states have pretty good norms about making sure that uh, the board of trustees, even if they're appointed by the governor and the legislature, are serious people with some meaningful connection to university life. And so, But there are places where the boards of trustees are just partisan hacks. Um, where you can be appointed a trustee of the public university precisely because you play to this constituencies of saying how terrible universities are. I really worry about whether the public universities in those states will be able to stand up to state pressure much more than I worry about, at least for now, at least as we've seen the executive order so far about what's happening at the federal level. And the US does have the advantage over lots of other countries of having some incredibly wealthy and powerful private universities. Uh, if things get intolerable with strings being tied to funding, uh, a Harvard or a Stanford could walk away from federal funding, not forever, but for a good long time and survive pretty well. There are private universities like Johns Hopkins that can't, but Harvard or Stanford really could, and they could make a stand, they could make a fuss. Well, that's the other point, I think, when I'm listening to you that I hope that private universities will use their platform at this moment to speak on behalf of all universities. I agree. Because I agree. A, a public is already in a harder position for the provost or chancellor or president of a public university to speak out possibly against its own board or against its legislative higher education committee, that the privates and publics need to be joined right now so it's a united voice rather than one president or chancellor speaking up. Absolutely. And I do think that the, the leaders of those strong, powerful private universities have especially strong responsibilities because they have much greater autonomy. They have much greater freedom to be able to speak truly. Right, and they have this symbolic force. I mean, they, they speak, people pay attention. That's right, too. Uh, That's yeah. right. So I, I want to thank you. This is really um, this has been one of the best conversations to open up this tension between this state and the university, and I really want to thank you for the book which opens up this idea that associations are forms where power is located and distributed in different ways. I really appreciate that. Great. Thank you very much. This was fun.